Happy Mother's Day and thank you for joining us. This is the Way Family Church Sermon Podcast. We'd welcome you to join us every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. at Lawford Middle School here in Tucson, Arizona. You can visit us online at wayfamily.church. We hope to see you soon. Open your Bibles to Acts 24. We're going to just continue seeing what's going on with Paul. If you remember last week, we've been uh, uh, just kind of following Paul's journey as a missionary, as an apostle, as a servant of God Almighty. Amen. And it seems that it seems that um, it's just not easy. The work of the apostle is just not easy, but that's because God told him it wasn't going to be easy, easy, right? And so as we've been going through the book of Acts and just learning from Paul and his ministry, I hope that um, you see the effort and the dedication that Paul had for the gospel of Jesus Christ. For him, it meant everything. Every, everything to the point where it was worth getting into just a little bit of trouble for the sake of Jesus Christ. And what do I mean by getting into trouble? Does it mean that he was doing something wrong? No, he was just provoking people in a way that was perhaps uncomfortable. Especially the Jews in Jerusalem. They really didn't like the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For after all, they, they tried to put Jesus to death, didn't they? It was just something that they could not tolerate. Whoa. What's going on here? <laughs> and so what happens is Paul, you know, is commissioned as an apostle, but he's commissioned to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And so he's not in Jerusalem for the most of his ministry. He's actually in what they would call the, the, the ends of the earth, the ends of the world as the world was known. And so he was out there planting churches, making disciples of the Gentiles. And so if you remember, uh, the Gentiles raised this, this source of relief, financial relief for the church in Jerusalem. And so Paul is now going to return his journey, or he's going to shift his journey to return to Jerusalem to bring relief to the church in Jerusalem for their resources had been depleted. And so he's going back for that purpose. And of course, if you go to Jerusalem, you also go to worship and he's going in a time um, where was the Passover, the Feast of the Passover, and then also to commemorate the Pentecost. And so you know that Paul's uh, intentions in going to Jerusalem were just for that. He wasn't intending in going for an evangelistic trip, for he knew he was called to the Gentiles, right? And he knew that the apostles like Peter and John and James, they were called to Jerusalem and other places. And so he had that clear. He makes his way to Jerusalem, and people warn him about that, right? Nevertheless, he gets there, and shortly after he gets there, he is arrested. And the last we left off, he's under the custody of Lysias, Claudius Lysias, tribune of the Romans in Jerusalem. And so he's kept there safe because there has been a plot against Paul. The, the Jewish leaders, the, the, the high priests, are wanting to see Paul dead. He's that much of a source of trouble for them. Why? Because he's challenging. He's challenging theology. He's challenging their status. And he's really challenging their personal thought and belief. And sometimes we would say, and we would agree that that's hard to deal with, right? Nevertheless, Paul's dedication to truth and the truth of the gospel trumps everything else. That's what he lives for. And so that's where we left off. And last week we saw that there was a plot against Paul. They wanted to do anything in their power to kill him. They took an oath they said that they would not eat or drink until Paul was dead. However, through the Lord's providential protection, Paul is removed from that 
um, uh, hostile environment or that threatening environment to a place where he could be safe until trial. For the Roman government still did not understand why Paul was being uh, hated on in the degree that he was. And so that's where we are. So with that, let's read chapter 24, and we'll, we'll do the whole chapter today. <clears throat> it says this, And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him, your, by examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it, is not, it, that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you that or what they now bring up against me. But this I confess, confess to you that according to the way which they all call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God or toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and make accusations. Making accusations, should they have anything against me? Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this, one thing that I cried out while standing among them it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribute comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but, the, but, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And at the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. 
When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We ask, Father, that you would open up our hearts and minds to receive it, understand it, Lord Jesus, and apply it to our lives. But we're excited to see what you have for us. So, Lord, today we just focus on it, asking you, Lord Jesus, to continue to sanctify us through it. We pray in your mighty name. Amen. So, as I was working this section here, I see, we see a beautiful picture of another trial. And if you remember, it was actually the week before the Easter season, we did uh, chapter 22, which was under trial. So Paul stands before the Sanhedrin and he goes under trial. And if you remember, that trial didn't go very well at all, right? It was uh, a definitely a different format from this. And you can tell that it just resulted in nothing. And so here we are again. Paul's under trial, but this time he's under a different style of trial. He's not under um, Jewish jurisdiction, he's under Roman jurisdiction, and that changes things a bit. And so as I was preparing, I was thinking, okay, what's, what's God saying here? What's he telling me here? And so I titled this sermon, Important Decisions. And perhaps you haven't, uh, haven't understood why it's important decisions, but hopefully we can make sense of it here in a bit. So important decisions. Paul now stands before Felix, who is the governor of the province of Judea, and he is going to stand trial before him. And as I mentioned, now it's a different jurisdiction. It's Roman. And so the trial, the trial is going to look a little bit different from what it did in the Sanhedrin. There's going to be three parts to this trial. And like what you would call a modern or a common trial nowadays, you'll see this three sections. First, there's a prosecution. Then there's a defense. And then the verdict. Did you, did you catch that when we read that? So what I'd like to do today is dive into that and just look at each of those sections and see what we can we can learn from them, okay? So the first thing we're going to do is look at the prosecution. So here's Paul, right? And he's waiting to, be, to stand trial before um, Felix. And the scripture says here in verse 1 of chapter 24, and it says, And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down. After five days. So remember, um, Paul was put on a horse and he was taken via Pony Express to Caesarea from Jerusalem. They needed to get him fast, but there was a kind of a halfway point there, Antipatris, and he stayed there. And then when he arrived at, at, at Caesarea, it says that he waited five days. So after five days, now as he's waiting there, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman. You might be thinking, man, that's a long time to wait. That's actually, maybe you're thinking that or maybe not, but that's actually not a long time to wait. So if you are the elders of the church or the the Jewish uh, leaders in Jerusalem, and if you're the high priest and the el uh, el elders, as I mentioned, five days is not a whole lot of time to prepare a case against Paul. Now you think about it. You're really trying hard to come up with reasons to kill him, and it's just the fact of the matter that you don't have enough reasons to kill him, right? Which is why it's been a problem from the beginning. And then you have five days to present a case before a Roman official. Now this isn't Jewish law anymore. This is now Roman law. It's a Roman court. And I remember the Jewish high priests and the elders, they were experts in the law of Moses. They were not experts in the law of Rome. And so what do they do? It says here that they, they came down with elders and a spokesman. Now, some, some translations say a lawyer. They got smart. They said, wait, there's no way we can stand up against Paul because it kind of hasn't gone well for us. We're not very well versed. 
you know, as a lawyer would be to uh, really stand ground uh, and present a strong case versus Paul. So what they do is they hire a lawyer, an attorney, and his name is Tertullus. Now, his name tells us something a little bit, too. It tells us that he's not Jewish, a native Jew. Tertullus is not a native Jewish name. He's either a Roman or he's a Hellenistic Jew. So not native to Jerusalem or to the Hebrew culture, which means he's very well versed with Roman law. And so the high priest did a really, I would say, a smart move in this case, find representation to really present a strong case against Paul. And so that's what we're having here. And especially with such short amount of time, I would say that this was definitely the best course of action to help their cause. And so they bring Tertullus, and then they lay before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying this. Now, here's the prosecution. Tertullus is going to bring three charges against Paul, and I want you to catch this. The three charges are going to be this. I'm going to, I'm going to set them before you so you can kind of catch them as they come. The first charge against Paul is actually, and what I did is I did a little research to see, okay, what is the actual technical name of this offense? The first one's going to be sedition. According to Roman law, <laughs> Uh, Paul, you know, or according to these guys in Roman law, Paul, they're accusing him to be guilty of sedition. The next one is sectarianism. And then finally, they accuse him of sacrilege. Right, and I'll explain it, okay? Sedition is actually conduct or, or speech inciting people to rebel against the authority of the state. So it's people who stir up revolts against Rome. This is the accusation that they're going to bring against Paul. And this is actually genius. Because remember, you're before Felix, the governor, who represents Rome. And this was very, very serious. Uh, do you remember the Egyptian assassin that we keep talking about? And there's been other people who've tried to stand up against Rome and they've tried to cause a ruckus. Rome does not take lightly to that. They respond immediately to anything that, um, that, that is really... Contra Rome. So this is exactly what they're accusing him of, and they're hoping that this is definitely something that Felix takes note of. The second thing is called sectarianism, and that's excessive attachment to a particular sect or party, and this is versus the Jewish law. Now, why are they presenting this? Because the Jews had a special arrangement where their law was actually approved by Roman law. So Judaism was approved by Rome. And so if Judaism was approved by Rome, they kind of have to back that up. And so what they're saying is Paul is guilty of deviating from what's approved by Rome, and therefore you need to take action. He's starting a cult. He's starting a sect is what they're saying. And so this is the second allegation against him. And then the last one is sacrilege, which is violation or misuse of what is regarded as sacred. Now the reason why they're bringing this up is because Paul is no longer under their jurisdiction. He's under Felix's. And so because we have this agreement with Rome where Judaism is permissible, then you're going to have to help us out here in prosecuting uh, Paul for, what, for how he broke the Jewish law. And so they're presenting this, hoping that this will convince Felix that Paul is a bad man, right? And so now let's look at it. I'm, I'm giving you the technical terms, but let's break it down here. And so Tertullus began to accuse him saying this, and I love the way he starts, but not really. <laughs> he says, since through you we enjoy much peace. 
And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, if you can just imagine the flattery right here, this is exactly what he's doing. He says, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. So I hate to break it to you, but he's kind of being a suck up. You know what I mean? He's really trying to flatter Felix. It's something that was very usual. Uh, remember, this was a culture that was status-based, and so this attorney knew what he was doing, and he was kind of fl fluffing the guy up, right? Oh, you're amazing. You're awesome. And this kind of thing really impacted people of status and leadership, and so it could have been something that worked normally, but nevertheless, he's definitely using flattery, all right? And so, and so he, he starts with that, and then he says, but to detain you no further... I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. And here's the beginning of the first allegation. For we have found this man a plague. No joke, right? They've definitely found him a problem. Some translations say a pest. They can't deal with him. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. There's the first allegation. And that's, the, that's sedition right there. That's what they're accusing of. He's someone who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. Throughout the world means the Roman Empire. And so this Paul is someone who keeps stirring up revolts. There's a lot of riots and there's a lot of revolts because of what he does, and that's what he does intentionally is the accusation. And so again, that's sedition. That's a violation against Roman law. The next thing they accuse him of is sectarianism, and this is what he says. He is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. You see that? He's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And, I, and it's interesting why they picked this language, the Nazarenes. Now, this is the first time we see the Christians referred as the Nazarenes, right? Why is he doing this? Do you remember back in John chapter 1? Um, I think it was verse 7, where Nathaniel is, or, or, or Philip is trying to recruit Nathaniel to join Jesus. Do you remember that? And, and Nathaniel's having a conversation, or, or sorry, Philip is having a conversation with Nathaniel, and he tells him, come and see. And Nathaniel's response is, does anything good come from Nazareth? Mm -hmm. Right? And so why did he say that? Because there was this perception that anything that came from Nazareth was, eh, Nazareth wasn't educated, they really didn't contribute to society, they were kind of just the least of these, right? It wasn't a good, you, you shouldn't be proud to be from Nazareth. You know, which is a lot, well, I, a lot of people had a problem with Jesus. It's like, how could Jesus come from Nazareth? Nathaniel himself had a problem with that. And so Philip's response was just, come and see. Check it out. It's unbelievable. You know what I mean? And so this lawyer is smart, and he says, he's the ringleader of the sect of the Nazar Nazarenes, which means he's the leader of a sect of a bunch of nobodies, of a bunch of dummies. It's definitely meant to be derogatory. You see that? <laughs> And he says he's, he's guilty of sectarianism, and that's a violation against Jewish law. And so they're presenting this before the great Felix, right? And so we continue here. <clears throat> yes, and then verse 6. And then he says this, and this is the third allegation. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Verse 8, by examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. 
Now, did anyone notice something interesting here? Who's following along with their Bibles? Yeah? Did you notice that we went from verse 6 to verse 8? Where's verse (laughs) 7? Right? And so that's interesting because I thought, that's interesting right there. Well, if, if you have like an ESV translation or something like that, or, or a, CB, a CSB or a different type of translation, usually there's a footnote and you'll see what verse 7 says, okay? But there's a reason why verse 7 is not here. Now, uh, verse 7 is not here because... Um, where, where is my note on that? Well, I'll just tell you off the top of my head. If it's not in the original manuscript... The translator for a word-for-word translator, they don't include it there. However, it is an ancient translation, and so therefore it's written there. So the question is, should we add it, should we not, right? Well, they added it, but just not as it was read in the original manuscripts, which is why it's there. But what is verse 7 actually? Is it actually verse 7 and part of verse 8? What does it actually say? It says this, But the chief captain Lysias came... And with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come before him. So what they're saying is, hey, we would deal with this ourselves, but Lysias came and he took him away, so we weren't able to deal with him. That's what they're, that's what they're saying. This is why we're bringing these allegations to you. Yes, they're against our law, but we didn't have the ability to deal with them ourselves. All right? And so we have the three charges against Paul. Now, let's look at the defense. Before that, and I'll just finish this section, it says, By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. Now, before I go into the defense, the more I think about that verse right there, the more I think how silly Tertullus was to, to say that. That obviously shows that Tertullus didn't know Paul very well, because there's no way I would leave it up to Paul to try to, you know, win an argument against me. You know what I mean? Like, Paul was a sharp guy. He was so sharp that he really upset a lot of people. He really made them think in a way that you just couldn't before. And so he, he kind of leaves it up to Paul and he says, you'll see, he thought that Paul was going to be a dummy. He really did. And he says, you'll just listen to him. Just listen to him open his mouth and you'll see that everything of which we accuse him is true. And so the Jews also joined in the charge affirming that all these things were so. They're like, yeah, yeah, good job to tell us. It's true. It's right, right? And then verse 10, and when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied. And so here's Paul's defense. Does Paul have an attorney? No. Would you think, is that unfair? Well, kind of, except for if I were in that situation, I would hire Paul to be my attorney. I really would, you know, like the guy was definitely well equipped. And so here he is ready to give a defense. Now, what's interesting here is that this word defense, remember the first trial we looked or even when he, shared, he gave his defense before the crowd in Jerusalem, we talked that that word defense in the Greek was apologia, which is to defend the, the, hope of you, the hope of your faith or the reason why you believe something. It's to defend your, your, your mindset, uh, your faith, as I mentioned. This is not that same word. This is not the same kind of defense, which I thought it was very interesting. This is a different defense. In fact, this one's apologeoma. It's not apologia, it's apologeoma. What does this mean? This is as if someone was up to go at you and punch you in the face. You would defend yourself in that way. Do you see the different type of defense? It's not like me arguing what you believe is wrong and then you have to give a defense for what you believe or how you process and think. This is, you have to literally defend yourself from me because I'm about to hurt you. 
That's the kind of defense that he's presenting. So we're not necessarily going to see a testimony here. We're going to see facts. And that's what he brings. He's going to dismantle these arguments by showing proof and facts as to why what they're, uh, why what they're saying is wrong. It's false. And so that's the type of defense that Paul's about to present. Are you following? And so... Um, Verse 10, and the governor had nodded to him to speak, and Paul replied this, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Paul's not coming out with flattery. He's actually stating facts. He knows that Felix is not new to this. He has been judge over several trials. And he's kind of challenging him to do his job well, in a sense. And he says, I know that you're not new to this. I know that you know how this goes. And because I know that you know that, I am happy. I'm happy to make my defense. Okay? We're going to speak the same language here. And you're totally well equipped to do that. And so in verse 11, he starts and he says, You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in, worship in Jerusalem. 12 days. Well, you know, Paul challenged him to verify that there was not more than 12 days. So, of course, I went to verify it myself. I'm like, was it really not 12 days? And here's what I found. Day one, he got to Jerusalem. He visited with fellow believers. We read about that. The next day, he visited with James and the elders. Remember that? And then he joined brothers under, who were under a vow. And then it says that it was almost seven days. So not quite seven days. So according to the timeline, it looks like it was day five when Paul was arrested. So we're at day five. Day six, six, he was tried by the Sanhedrin. Day seven, he was moved to Antipatris, which was halfway point between Jerusalem and Caesarea. And then day eight, day eight he arrives at Caesarea and he has to wait five days. So that makes it 12. So this guy has a legit alibi, right? Like he knows what he's talking about. He's not making things up. He has proof. And he says, you will know, you will verify, it has not been more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. Verse 12 says, and they did not find me disputing with anyone. So here's his defense against sedition. All right. He says, I did not dispute with anybody. And they did not see me dispute with anybody or stirring up a crowd anywhere, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. This pretty much covers all the bases where you would dispute with people. And he's saying what they're accusing me of, they did not see because it did not happen because I didn't even come here for that. All right. And then he goes on and he says, neither can they prove to you what they now bring against me. So there's no proof of what they're saying. And he's taking advantage of that. And so he goes on to defend the second allegation, which is his defense against sectarianism. And then he says in verse 14, but I confess to you. Oh, wait, we have a confession. <laughs> Let's see what it is. I confess to you that according to the way, not to the sect of the Nazarenes, which if you call them Christians, fine. But he says, according to the way, that's what the people knew Christianity to be at the time. And then we also read that Felix was familiar with that. OK, and so he's like he's he's not making less of what he believes. He says, according to the way i am of that belief system right he says which they call a sect he says i worship the god of our fathers believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets 
having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, and there will be a resurrection of both the just and unjust. And then he says in 16, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. What he's saying is what I believe is not in the remote least contrary to what they believe. They're accusing me of, of, of starting a, this whole new cult or sect or whatever. And he's saying everything that I believe is lawful. Why? Because <laughs> Jesus did not abolish the law. He fulfilled the law, right? And he's saying nothing Nothing that I believe is actually illegal according to Judaism. I'm still a Jew. And he says, they believe what I believe. The Pharisees do. Hope and resurrection. Why aren't they on trial? He's turning the tables. You see that? Now, who's the heretic? Wait, I believe everything that I do according to the scriptures. We, believe, we were trusted and we waited for a Messiah. The Messiah came. I believe in the Messiah. Why don't you is essentially what he's doing. So it's definitely nothing wayward from what they believe. And so that's his defense there. And what's interesting is that these men who are accusing him are standing there. So what would their argument be against that? Right? And so he, he, he goes and says, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and man. Here's what's interesting. What he's saying is, I want to do by first God. I want to do well first by God and then by man. I always do whatever I have to do. First God, then man. Sometimes man don't like it, but I'm doing it to have a clear conscience before God, right? And then he goes on, he makes his defense for the last allegation, let's say a charge against him. And he says, now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation. Remember, he was out in the Gentile regions. And after several years of that, he comes back to Jerusalem. And this is what he comes back for. He comes back to Jerusalem to bring alms to his nation and to present an offering. While, an offering. And while he was doing this, they found him purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. The, so when they said that he was stirring up a crowd and doing all these illegal things, he said, I wasn't doing that. I was purifying myself, which is what a good Jew does. <laughs> You know, that's what they found me doing. And I wasn't here to evangelize. I wasn't here to have arguments with people. I came here to pay alms and to bring this gift that I was entrusted with. I have no other reason to be here. In fact, we know that Paul intended to do what he needed to do and then move on. He wrote to the Romans. He said, I'm going to go to Rome. I'm excited to see you. And then from there, I'm going to go to Spain. That was his plan. And in fact, he wrote the book of Romans or the epistle to the Romans before this happened. So if needed, he probably would have had something in paper that said, this, that's not what I came here for. But nevertheless, he says, I was purifying myself. I was doing what a Jew needed to do. And then he says, but some Jews from Asia, wait a minute, where are those guys? Where are the guys who are actually accusing me of a, of a crime? He said, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation. Should they have anything against me? Or else let these men say, or themselves say what wrongdoing they have found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with the respect up to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. He says, those who actually accuse me of doing something, where are they? Shouldn't they be here? Shouldn't they be witnesses to what I did? Because see, everyone who's here, they didn't see anything. Can they say that they saw me doing what, what I'm being accused of doing? You don't have any witnesses. You don't have any proof. And he says, the only thing 
they can attest to is what I actually said. And he said, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. You can tell that this is what Paul wanted to talk about. If we're going to put something on trial, let's put the resurrection on trial. Let's talk about that. I'm ready to defend that too. You can tell that this is where he kept going. He wanted to have that conversation about the resurrection of the dead. And this is exactly what they were avoiding. It just caused a problem for the religious leaders. And so he says, I've done nothing wrong, basically, right? And he gives his arguments for that. And I think Paul does an excellent job. He neither profanes the temple. He doesn't break the Jewish law as far as being part of a different unlawful sect. And he wasn't there to cause revolt. Now, what's interesting is the verdict, if we can maybe even find one. All right. And then says in 22, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off. Now, this is interesting because it says that Felix had a rather accurate knowledge of the way. So he knew about Christianity. So that, that's very, it's very possible that through his wife, Drusilla, he knew these things because we see that she was Jewish. That means that he knew that Christianity was not a political revolution. That was his biggest concern. That was his job is to prevent any revolutions against Rome. And if he had an accurate knowledge of the way of Christianity, that means that he knew that there was no real threat here. All right, and, and it possibly means that he knew the gospel. This is where it gets really interested, interesting. And says, and that he put them off. And he says this, when Lysias the tribunes come down, the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Now, did you know that there's no evidence whether or not he actually summoned Lysias? And there's no evidence that if he did, that if Lysias showed up, because we can see that Paul was here for several, a couple years and there was nothing as to what would happen next. But he just put them off and he gave him that excuse. When Lysias comes, then I will decide your case. He did not make an important decision. And verse 23 says, when he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be preventing from attending to his needs. So it's very evident that there's nothing to condemn Paul for to the degree that, you know what, I'm just going to keep you here. I'm going to come up with an excuse to keep you here, but let him have a little bit of freedom. Just make sure he stays here. His friends can come in. He can have conversation with them, etc. right? You're not technically in trouble, but you have to stay here for a while. What kind of verdict is that? This is someone who's avoiding to make a very important decision here. And it gets more important than that. Check this out. After some days, Felix with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. What did I just read? And after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and he heard him speak about the faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I want to take a little pause and talk about Drusilla, Drusilla really quick. Now, I was kind of digging her in a little bit like, OK, who is this lady? She is the daughter of Herod Antipas. He's the same Herod that killed James, the brother of John, the disciple of Jesus. Okay? Drusilla is her daughter. And what happens to Drusilla, and this is like in secular history, Roman history. She marries a Syrian king. She's about the age of 16. She goes and marries this, marries this king in Syria. I think it's like Assisus or something like that. And Felix caught eye of her. And so he did whatever he could to attract her to marry him. And so Drusilla leaves her husband for Felix. 
You kind of see this problem here? And now Drusilla is a Jew, so she knows God's law. She knows God's standards for marriage, right? But nevertheless, she's persuaded by Felix to leave her husband. And so she goes in and marries him. She marries Felix. They have a son. And again, this is just me being a nerd right now. They have a son, and that son is verified to have been killed in the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, which is what wiped out Pompeii in A.D. 79. Pretty interesting, right? In fact, some believe that that's how Drusilla died as well, through that eruption of Pompeii. Have you guys heard of Pompeii? Okay. It was, it was a beautiful city that was destroyed by the volcano. So this is a little bit about Drusilla. Now, why am I telling you this? Because check this out. Check out what happens next. And so they sent for Paul and they heard him speak about what? Faith in Jesus Christ. That means they heard the gospel and you can count on it if Paul is talking about it. And then it says in 25, and he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. I just gave you a little history on these guys' marriage and relationship. All right. So if you can imagine, they're probably very uncomfortable with what Paul's talking to them about, right? But he's doing it out of love. Paul cares about truth, and he cares about pleasing the Lord before anybody. He doesn't care what they think about him. He knows that he's standing on the side of truth. What he cares is what God thinks about them and his, their relationship with God, and he's calling them to repentance is what he's doing. And then it says here that Felix was alarmed, and he said, go away. Just, just go away. Do you know that feeling when you're getting called out? It's like, just stop, stop, shh, 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 shh. just go away. You know, and I'm sure that Paul was just kind of like really pressing in and doing the best he could to beckon him to receive the gift of Jesus Christ, the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. And Felix says, just go away for the present. Then he says this, when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And at the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. He didn't send for him often because he was truly repentant of what was going on in his life. He sent for him often because he was hoping to get some kind of gain out of him. His friends visited him. There was a way. Paul could ask for some kind of bribe, you know, to give to Felix and let him go. But Paul was not that guy. He was not about bribing. He was not about lying. He was not breaking, about breaking God's law. He was about standing in righteousness for his name's sake, for the Lord's name's sake. And he would do whatever it would take to please God before he pleased man. That was Paul's stance. And it didn't happen. Felix missed an opportunity here. Not just an opportunity to be saved, which is huge. Like Paul's right there in front of you. <laughs> Listen to him. He wants you to have a relationship with the Lord. He wants you to be redeemed by him. And he missed that opportunity. He just let it go. And now I think that Felix could have gone into the history books for the guy who did the right thing for Paul, right? And dispatched Paul to do the work that he was called to do for he was innocent of the charges that were made against him. And instead he suppressed it. He dismissed it. He put it behind him. He cared more about his popularity. He cared more about what man thought about him. Paul cared more about what God thought about him. Do you see the difference here? And so he missed this beautiful opportunity, I would say. And, and we see this often, in, in fact. This is not the first time that we see a missed opportunity for a call to the gospel like that. And so it says, 
He hoped that money would be given to him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. 27, when two years had elapsed, man, that breaks my heart. Why did it take so long? He just didn't have the ability to do the right thing, right? He was just so concerned about his reputation. It says, two years had elapsed, and then Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. What a name. Hey, Finley, would you like that to be your name? Porcius Festus. <laughs> and it says, in desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. That's awful. If you can see that, right? So what are the takeaways? I was really asking the Lord, Lord, what do I get out of this? This is like a trial thing here, and it's pretty straightforward. It's a narrative, and sometimes it's hard to like see what the Lord's saying, but the first thing that I was having a conversation with Sandy, I'm like, this is what's going on. And, and she just, boom, she gave me the, the first takeaway. I said, text that to me, that's good. And this is it. By putting off important decisions, we can miss great opportunities. By putting off important decisions, we can miss great opportunities. This last portion of chapter 24 is an example of a tragic example of missed opportunity. You know, Felix had the privilege of spending time with Paul. Like, think about that. He heard the gospel, and he probably heard it very well. Like, I'm not that good at presenting the gospel, if you compared me to Paul, right? And sadly, he let that opportunity slip away, and there's no evidence, unfortunately, to indicate that Felix was saved. There's just no evidence. Is it possible? Sure, but why didn't he do anything about Paul being in the condition that he did? You know what I mean? So there's no evidence for that. that. That was a missed opportunity. Some other missed opportunities. Remember the philosophers in Athens when Paul was disputing with them and talking about the faith? They said, we shall hear about this another day. And then they dismissed Paul. And what we know is that Paul took off shortly after that. That was a missed opportunity. Like if you have an opportunity to know Jesus Christ and you see the gospel and, you, you, and it's presented to you and you have an opportunity to receive that, take advantage of that. For it is the power of Christ that changes you. So it's really not about you and the condition that you're in at the time. Because while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. You can be saved in whatever condition that you are in. You just have to accept that gift. It's our human responsibility to say, yes, I receive you. And so the philosopher in Athens don't do that. There's some potential disciples of Jesus who also let an opportunity go. Let me show you that in Luke chapter 9, 57 through 60. Two, I believe it says, and as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. What does this mean? This man who wanted to follow Jesus, he had the potential opportunity to follow Jesus and be one of the disciples. Jesus says, hey, I don't have a home. I don't have luxury. I don't have comfort. This man preferred comfort over Jesus. Do you see that? What a missed opportunity. And it keeps going. And it says to another, he said, follow me. Jesus is calling him. He's saying, follow me. And this man's excuse says, but he said, Lord, let me first go and bury, bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury the dead, their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. What was more important to him? Wait, 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 wait. I'm not ready. There, there's things I have to handle to be able to follow you, Jesus. He says, let those things take care of themselves. I'm calling you to go proclaim the kingdom of God. He said, no. He didn't follow Jesus, right? And then yet another in 61, he says, I will follow you, Lord. But, 
Let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, he was more concerned about the things at home than the things of Christ. Can you blame them? Not necessarily. You know, sometimes we, we care for the loved ones, but they just didn't understand the magnitude, the beautifulness of being able to just have that opportunity to be with Christ. Those are missed opportunities. Judas Iscariot is another example of that. He was part of the 12. He was more concerned about earthly gain. And so what does he do? He betrays the Lord. What a missed opportunity for Judas. Nevertheless, the Lord already knew. In fact, that's probably why, that's definitely why Judas was called, because someone needed to betray him, because Jesus needed to die. So God knows what he's doing. But nevertheless, there's more examples of this. Nevertheless, I I want you to know, like, and when you share the gospel with others, there's just don't wait. Take advantage of the opportunity. And I know that some people are hesitant to commit to Christ because um, perhaps you hear the, the terms being born again. And that means that for some people interpret it as like, I have to be right. I have to just be sinless and holy. And at that point, that's not necessarily the case. You don't have to do that. Let me show you 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. This means that when you receive the gift of salvation, you are justified. That means your record's been expunged. You are a new creation in that sense. Does that mean that your old habits are gone? Does that mean that your mind has radically changed in the way where you're acting like a saint? Not necessarily. Like for Paul, it was a radical transformation. But for some, it's a very progressive thing, right? Let me show you 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord. The key word here is sanctify. That's a lifelong process of being made whole, blameless. That doesn't, the process of sanctification does not cease until you are with the Lord, until you're glorified. So can you come to Christ? Can you take advantage of the opportunity to follow? Absolutely. Does that mean you're going to have to be perfect? No, that means you're justified immediately, but you will become more and more holy, more set aside, just as you continue to learn and grow in Christ Jesus. That's his promise for us. So that's the first takeaway. By putting off important decisions, we can miss great opportunities. Takeaway number two, our desire to please God should far exceed our desire to please man. I'm guilty of this many times where I'm worried about what people might think about me. But our desire to please God should far exceed our desire to please man. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. How beautiful is that? Colossians 3, 23, Whatever you do, work heartedly as for the Lord and not for man. And there's a ton of different passages that proclaim this. Hey, it's for God, not for man. Worry about pleasing the Lord, not for man, right? And so it's important to understand God's will for us so that we can please him, so that we can pursue it. And so that's why today we honor moms. That was a good segue, wasn't it? (laughs) Why do we honor moms? What does the fifth commandment says? Honor your mother and your father, right? It's the one commandment with a promise. No, but it's Mother's Day. It is Mother's Day. 
And it is God's will for us to honor our parents, our mother, right? Which is why we have a dedicated day to honor moms. And so I want to say thank you, moms, for all that you do. And I know that you guys are doing a wonderful and difficult job. And the reason why we ought to honor you, I believe, is because God has really made you to do something that makes a world of a difference. And I just want to thank my wife for what she does. You know, I know that her desire is to pursue God first and foremost. She, she calls me out. She's not after, you know, pleasing me before pleasing God. I guarantee you that. And she's also not after pleasing our children before pleasing God. She will discipline them according to the word of God. And I love that about her because I was just talking to someone earlier. I'm definitely more of the softy. I'll let things slide. But the way that the Lord has made my wife is just so instrumental. And it really reminds me of Paul and how his desire was to please the Lord before mankind. And so our desire to please God should far exceed our desire to please man. Does that mean that we shouldn't please man at all? No, because again, honoring mom, that's pleasing man in a sense, you understand that? But that also honors God. Why? Because that's what he wants for us. So we should take care of one another. We should look after each other's need, but not because we want them to think highly of us, but because God has called us to that and we want to honor the Lord first and foremost. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads and pray. Important decisions important decisions. Lord, help us make those important decisions in a way that glorify you first and foremost. Lord, thank you for the privilege that it is to be here and honor moms today. Thank you for how you've built them, how you've made them, the resilience, Lord Jesus, in their heart, Father, to see future generations thrive. Lord, I just ask that you would continue to bless them with wisdom and with strength, Lord, and with that pursuit, Lord Jesus, to, to, to bless your name, Lord, above all things. And so, Lord, we ask, Father, that you would help us just pursue you, not put off important decisions, not be overly concerned about what's going on here in life, but for our eternity. Lord, help us just step into faith in you. And if there's something that we're putting off, Lord, just help us, Lord Jesus, understand your will that we could just press forward and trust you. Lord, we stand on truth and your love, and we trust you wholeheartedly for that. In Jesus' name, amen.